leading us in worship and what a fitting song for us to conclude our song service with this morning as we thought about missions and the heart of missions being what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, the gospel of Christ, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again, that we might have eternal life. I trust today that you are rejoicing in that and the opportunity we have to be together as the family of God here at Maranatha Baptist. It's great for us to be able to be with you and to look out into the auditorium and see lots of familiar faces and smiling faces and even some waving hands and stuff like that, as well as some new, new folks that we're meeting for the very first time today and look forward to, uh, through our opportunity in both these times together, getting to know a number of you that we maybe don't know quite as well also. Appreciate so much Pastor Lance and Carrie and their wonderful hospitality and teaching us pickleball. Wow. I never knew that that's, that was what we're going to do, last, but that was just kind of a whimsical thing that we had. They were talking about it. We said, we've never done that. Let's do this. And uh, they, were, they were nice to us. They didn't crush us in, uh, in pickleball. They probably could have, but uh, we had a great, great time fellowshipping together. We have known Pastor Lance and Carrie for quite a few years and just are so thrilled of what God's doing here through them, uh, their pastoral ministry, their loving ministry. I know that uh, they love you. And uh, they really counted a real joy to be able to shepherd this flock along with your other pastors that are part of the team here at Maranatha. So you are blessed. And maybe you don't know fully how blessed you are, but you truly are blessed as as a church family. And uh, we're just thankful to be able to be here together with you. Um, We really treasure the relationship. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in the family hour. But we treasure the relationship that Maranatha Baptist has with Baptist Midmissions in that you are a commissioning church, a sending church. Uh, Baptist Midmissions doesn't really have missionaries. We just serve churches that have missionaries. And so you are a commissioning church for a couple of families with Baptist Midmissions and you support a whole bunch of other missionaries with Baptist Midmissions. And so we're just so grateful for that great relationship that we've enjoyed over the years and the opportunity I have as the newer president. I still play that new president card every now and then, just as an excuse, I think. But as the newer president, uh, to finally be able to get here to Maranatha and uh, to uh, convey our appreciation as well as continue that, that great relationship that we've enjoyed with you. Uh, let me introduce you really quickly to my wife and then to our family. This is my sweetheart, Ruth. And uh, I believe there's a picture there of her. Yeah, there we go. And uh, us. Uh, I think it's the down arrow instead of the up arrow. That's the, that's the, it's the, the, the little pointer thing is a little different than what we're used to. So uh, Ruth and I have been married for 32 years and sweethearts for 37 years. I preached at a camp last week where we went on our first date 37 years ago, Bass Lake Camp in Minnesota. And so that was kind of nostalgic for us to be back at camp and the place that we went on our first date all those years ago. Since that time, God's blessed us with this clan, and we're very grateful for the Lord blessing us with four kids and uh, three sons-in-law and our our son as well. So on the right-hand side is our oldest daughter, Ellen, and her husband, Eric. I'm sorry, on the left-hand side uh, is our oldest daughter, Ellen, and her husband, Eric, and their two little grandbabies. And they serve at Higher Ground Baptist Bible Camp. He's the director of that camp in Sterling, Alaska. And then on the other side is our second daughter, Tori, and she and Temi, her husband, serve in campus ministry in the Twin Cities. They actually just moved there, changing ministries for them as they're a part of a campus ministry in the greater metro area of Minneapolis-St. Paul. And then in the back is our third daughter, and uh, she, Julia, and her husband just got married two months ago. And uh, they're the, the one, one, uh, one of our kids that looks like may actually live close to us, so we're thankful for that. They moved into their house yesterday, just five miles from us, and we're thankful for that. And then Carson, our, our baby, as his sisters still call him, at age 21, 
uh, is a student at Faith. He'll be a senior this fall at Faith. He was on the contenders team up at IRBC. Some of you just got back from a great week up there at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp, and Carson's serving as a contender and just really loving that. So that's the fam. That's who we are. Uh, the Lord used us in pastoral ministry for a number of years. I pastored as an assistant at Ankeny Baptist and then a senior pastor at Holmes Baptist in northern Iowa. Served for a while in the administration at Faith Baptist Bible College. And then the Lord called us to Ohio where I served. Oh, the grandbabies. My wife just gave me the cue. Don't forget the grandbabies. Here are the grandbabies, okay? <laughs> Emery and Ensley. And I uh, just want to make sure as a grandpa we don't forget them. They are the cutest grandchildren in the world. Okay? You know that, right? Uh, no competition. If you show me pictures, I'll still vote for mine. All right? But uh, we're very grateful for these two little adorable, sweet little things. Uh, see, I can start telling stories, so I shouldn't go that direction related to the grandbabies. But uh, thankful for them. Anyway, I was starting to say that, that God used us in pastoral ministry, Ankeny Baptist, Holmes Baptist, and then at Faith Baptist Bible College, and then at First Baptist Church of Elyria, Ohio, before the Lord called us to serve with Baptist Midmissions. And it's really a joy and privilege to shepherd this wonderful flock called BMM, Baptist Midmissions, and the missionaries that serve in 50 countries around the world today, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I grew up uh, in Nebraska. I know that some people don't like that, that name, that state, um, but that, you know, that state to the west, right? Uh, I grew up in Nebraska in a rural context. I, I thought for sure I'd get at least a Go Big Red or something out of a few of you that are Nebraska fans in the, in the, in the pews today. Uh, but I grew up in a very rural part of Nebraska. Uh, Gravel Road, middle of nowhere. Our only address was Rural Route 3, West Point, Nebraska. And that's kind of the context of, of my growing up years for 14 years of my young life. Uh, all I really knew was what you know in rural Nebraska, and that's farming, okay, in rural Nebraska. Um, and our family was a little biased when it came to the choice of, of colors. Uh, green was the right color, red was the wrong color. So I remember as a child, my dad rebuilding a, a John Deere tractor. And uh, here's a picture of a tractor similar to it. This is not exactly his. But I remember my big goal in life was the day when the day would come when I would get to drive the tractor. If any of you grew up on the farm, you can relate to that, thinking, you know, when will I be old enough to get to drive the tractor? And so dad started teaching me at a young age. And finally, at age nine, Dad let me solo fly, the tra- or solo drive, I guess you could call it, the tractor. And I remember just thinking as a little boy, thinking, man, I am, I am on cloud nine. I'm getting to drive the tractor. I'm such a big deal. And, uh, but then, of course, you know, as you got older, you're thinking, you know, I wonder when I, I, wonder when I get to graduate to real tractors. Nothing wrong with a, a 1946 John Deere B. But uh, I wonder when it'll be when I get to graduate to, to real tractors. And watching all the farms around me, especially, my dad didn't farm, but we lived on an acreage, but all of my relatives did. So all my mom's family, especially, it was just farm, farm, farm all around us. And so I started working on the farm. And, and of course, the, the pinnacle of the farm is when you get to drive the combine. And I remember thinking, you know, I wonder when that day will come. Anybody want to venture to guess how old I was before someone entrusted me with a $500,000 piece of equipment? (laughs) I was a pastor at Holmes Baptist in my 30s before somebody finally entrusted me with that that opportunity to drive one of those. And part of my aspiration was this, is that I wanted to, to get involved in the harvest. Because growing up in the farm, you saw the busyness and the excitement that, that came to the farm in the fall when, when it was harvest time. And it was everybody getting involved to get the harvest into the field. And so I wanted to get involved in the harvest. It wasn't just about driving tractors, in other words. 
It was about being involved in the harvest. And Jesus uses that type of theme here in this passage of Scripture to describe the harvest of souls. To describe reaching people for Him and through the Gospel of Christ. Pastor Lance already read the text, but notice what it says there very specifically in verse 37. He said to His disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest field. And so what this text is teaching us is simply this, that God wants us to get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls. God wants every Christian to to be involved in that ministry of reaching souls for Christ. And this morning I want us to, to, to notice three different aspects in relationship to that call to involvement in the harvest of souls and bringing people to Jesus Christ. The first thing that I would point out to us from the text is this, that Jesus notes the size of the harvest. You're familiar with the words, but I I think it's important for us to look at them once again when he says that the harvest is plentiful. I think it's interesting also, if you back up to verse 36, you get a little bit better idea of the context when in verse 36 it describes the multitudes that that are following him. So when Jesus is speaking here of the size of the harvest, he has in mind those multitudes, but undoubtedly he has in mind also the multitudes of the world, the people that that need to know him as their personal Savior. And so he describes the harvest in terms of it being plentiful. I want us to think a little bit about that this morning, because why is it that Jesus told us that? Are there not implications? Why would he point out the size of the harvest to us? Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly say this, but I think there are two implications from him pointing out the size of the harvest. The first one is that that there ought to be, when the harvest is huge, there ought to be a a spirit of excitement. So some of this is taken from the text, but it's also taken from just the reality of what it's like on the farm. What it would have been like on the farm back then, but also what it's like on the farm even today. So a spirit of excitement. You understand, you live in Iowa, right? So even though you may not live on a farm, you understand that on the farm, in the fall, in Iowa, there is a spirit of excitement and there's no better time of the year because it's the opportunity to enjoy the fruit of your labors the entire rest of the year. And the bigger the crop, right, the more exciting it is because the bigger the crop, the more likely that that year you actually make money and don't lose it like you might have last year. And so there's that spirit of excitement, and and Jesus speaks in terms of the harvest being plentiful, so the size of the harvest ought to really create a, a spirit of excitement on the farm, but also in our hearts in relationship to souls. If there was one word that I, that I would connect with this spirit of excitement, it's the word opportunity. The fact that the harvest is huge, means there is a great opportunity for us to reach people for Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. If you get involved in harvest ministry, there will never be a lack of work because there will never be a lack of souls. There will always be people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will always be people to reach. And that really ought to excite us. There ought to be a spirit of excitement. The other implication, I think, that, that, that connects with what Jesus is saying here is this, that the size of the harvest ought to also create a sense of urgency. I mean, think about it. Is that not the case 
on the farm in the fall in terms of how many get involved in the harvest. I, I pastored at, at Holmes Baptist Church, you know, in the very heart of some of the most fertile ground in all of the United States of America, and probably all of the world, in Wright County, Iowa. And I remember some of the, the farm families there in the church and just how intense, if I can use that word, they were about harvest. You know, when you see, when you see 12-year-old boys driving 200-horsepower tractors, you know, it's a big deal. I mean, it was all hands on deck. It was everybody gets involved because we need to do everything we can to, to get the, 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 the crops out of the field and in the bin. And I, I remember even one family in particular that probably was more intense and urgent about it than any other family in, in our church. You know, and honestly, when I grew up in Nebraska, it was kind of more small farms and a lot of guys just kind of got around to it. You know, and it was more about the, uh, the family atmosphere, the social atmosphere of the farm. I remember, I think we took breaks like four times a day, you know, had more coffee and more cookies and all that kind of stuff. That was not the case for this family in northern Iowa. I remember watching them. They would go, and they farmed like 3,000 acres, and there were three, there were three generations in the, in the farm that were a part of the farm, and, you know, one of those century farms, all those things. But when they opened the field, they used two combines, and so when, when they opened the field... Um, with the two combines, they would then pull two or three semi-trucks up on the gravel road. And once those combines started in that field, they didn't stop. The wheels did not stop turning until that field was done. And so they wouldn't take time for, for breaks. They would, they, that was what their, their cooler was for in the cab. And so they would eat as they combined, and they wouldn't slow down. And they didn't even stop to empty the, the hopper that was full of grain from the combine. Instead of doing that, they used what's called a grain cart. And you've seen these around here in central Iowa as well. But part of the reason they do that is because of efficiency. So that combine never stops, even though the, the, the hopper is full of grain. Instead, it unloads, and they call it catching on the run. They would always catch on the run, which meant the grain cart would catch the grain out of the combine, so the combine never had to stop. And then that grain cart would make its way over to the other combine, and, and, and it would get filled from the other combine. And then that Grain cart would go to the semis that were on the side of the road, and those semis would go back to the home place where there were huge bins. And it was just this constant motion machine of urgency that we've got to get the job done. And along would come a guy with a, once they opened enough of the field with their uh, ripper so that they could do their fall tillage. And so what was a full field full of corn at the beginning of the day was a field that was empty and tilled and ready to go for next spring. I mean, talk about a sense of urgency. Let me ask you, why did they have such a sense of urgency? What's the big deal, right? Why didn't they just kind of take their old sweet time? I know, we don't even like to admit this in the middle of summer in Iowa, right? There's something coming called, you can say it, it's not a bad word in church, okay? Winter, right? <laughs> Winter. And they realize that the time to, to harvest the grain is during the fall, not during the winter. And if you ever have lived on a farm and been a part of that, you understand that. I actually have helped my brother-in-law in Minnesota attempt to harvest with snow on the corn and snow down the, the rows. That is not the time of the year to be harvesting corn. It was a mess. It was a disaster. And so the sense of urgency is because winter is coming. Think about that in relationship to us and to today. Is winter not on the horizon in terms of what is happening in the world scene? Or even in, 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 in the scene here in the United States of America, are things getting better in the United States of America? Is there not a sense of it's getting worse and, and winter is coming? Is there, is, it, is there not a sense of urgency that we ought to be reaching people for Jesus Christ because A, things are getting worse, and B, hopefully Jesus is coming back. That ought to motivate us, right? 
And I don't say hopefully he's coming back because he's hopefully coming back. He is coming back, right? He's returning. And so time is short. That's the whole point in relationship to winter. And so there ought to be a sense of urgency in the soul of every born-again child of God to reach people for Christ. Harvest while you can. A sense of urgency. And yet it seems like most churches don't seem to have that sense of urgency today. They tell us that 80% of churches in America have either plateaued or are in decline. 80%. And of those churches that are growing in America, only 1% are growing because of conversion growth. In other words, only 1% are growing because they're reaching people for Jesus Christ. To me, that says we've lost perhaps our sense of urgency to reach people for Jesus Christ. So what, what stirs a sense of urgency in the soul of a Christian? I think the text at least implies, if not states it, when it describes Jesus here in verse 36, when it says this, when he, that's Jesus, saw the multitudes, he what? Was moved with compassion. Compassion for them. Something stirred within the soul of Jesus Christ when he saw the multitudes of people that needed to come to faith in him. And that same something ought to stir the souls and the hearts of the people of God to reach other people for Christ. A heart of compassion. You see, urgency is fueled by compassion for souls. And and that urgency is not just a compassion for the multitudes in terms of a generic sense. I serve as the, as the leader of a, of a mission organization, and I guess I could say I have a compassion and, a, and an urgency to reach souls for Christ around the world. That's true, but that's not enough. In other words, it's not enough for you to say, you know, I, I just, I, I'm praying for somebody to get saved in whatever country across the world. That's good, but the reality of the matter is this, that that compassion for souls ought to be the case with your neighbors. That ought to be the case with your coworkers. That ought to be the case with your with, with your family members that don't know Christ as their Savior, or maybe to put it more directly, compassion for the multitudes must become compassion for the individuals. It must become compassion for the people that God gives you an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with. I, th- I think about that even just in recent interactions that I've had the opportunity of having with, with lost people. Last Friday night, I sat with three teenagers uh, after the final message at a Bible camp in Minnesota, urging them to turn to Christ. They actually had come to me and just said, you know what, Pastor Pat, that's what they called me. Pastor Pat, can we talk? And hadn't gone, they hadn't gone out on an invitation, and they'd honestly been fairly inattentive to a lot of my sermons. So at one point, I was just kind of even wondering, were they paying attention? They were. They were. And they really just pelleted me with all kinds of questions about faith and Christ and the world and and, and I just point blank asked each one of them, are you a born-again believer? Are you headed for heaven? And all three of them just said, no. And really what was going on in each of their hearts was they were all grappling with whether or not they would trust Christ or live for the world. And they had all kinds of questions about living for the world and what that looks like. And, and they're just, they're just on the precipice, and it just stirred my heart because these are three young men in their teens that, that we concluded the conversation without any of them trusting Jesus Christ as their, as their Savior. That breaks my heart that they didn't make that decision. That's the kind of compassion that God wants all of us to have for people that need Jesus. 
I think of another couple that I met while I was out doing evangelistic calls when I'm, when I'm home at our church there in Elyria, Ohio. I'm part of, the, of a team that does a lot of the evangelistic calling. And so we were out actually calling on somebody altogether different. We were kind of in a rough neighborhood of, of town. Our, our inner core, inner city core of, of Elyria is a little bit rough. And so literally we walked up. We walked up to, the, to this uh, apartment building, and, and this lady stops us and say, it says, you don't want to go in there, the cops are coming. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and I said, so wh- wh- why are the cops coming? Oh, there's a big domestic fight going on. A girl kicked the guy out, you know, and he wants his billfold and cell phone or something like that, and wants his stuff back. And I said, well, it doesn't look like it's too bad. Oh, no, it's not that bad, but you still probably don't want to be around when the cops come. And so we found out the circumstances. We actually did go knock on not that, not that door, <laughs> but a different door. That we ended up not getting the opportunity to visit. But we went back out to this couple sitting out in the parking lot, the ones who said, you don't want to stay here. The cops are coming. And just engaged them in, in a gospel conversation. You know, she was sitting there with a, with a, what a, a bottle of what I thought was Gatorade. Uh, he was sitting there in a wheelchair having had one of his legs amputated and having all kinds of scars on his other leg, and I started to hear their, their story of, of what was going on in their, their lives, learn their names, and, and just thought, well, the Lord brought me here to, to share the gospel with Vance and Rose. And so I started sharing the gospel, with, and they listened. They interacted. Um, about three-fourths of the way through the conversation, I started wondering about Rose a little bit, and she then shared, uh, you, you know that this is not Gatorade in my bottle, this clear liquid, <laughs> And, and, and admitted that she was drinking Everclear whiskey while I was trying to share the gospel with her. And so at the end, I even asked them if they would trust Christ. And, and I just said to her, I, I'm not sure you're in the mental condition to, to make this decision. But he said to me, you know what? I need that. But I, I don't want to do it just because you told me to. I want to do it because it's a real, genuine decision of my heart to do what you just explained to me. And, and Vance and Rose have not yet trusted Christ, but God willing, I'm going back there when we're back in town. Because they said they sit out in the parking lot every night in, in this rough neighborhood. Maybe you don't even have air conditioning. I'm not sure. They sit out there in the parking lot every night. And so pray for Vance and Rose because God has stirred my heart with compassion for Vance and Rose that need Jesus Christ. So whether it's three teenagers at a Bible camp or Vance and Rose in a parking lot or your friend or your neighbor or your relative that needs Christ, God wants to do a work of stirring our hearts to reach, yes, the multitudes, but also the individuals. Is God doing that kind of work in your heart? And, and, and I, I don't want to presume that every person here today knows Christ as their Savior. So the message that I shared with Vance and Rose is the simple message that God is a holy God who can't allow sin into His presence. God is a just God who must punish sin. That's why we deserve to spend eternity in hell. God is a loving God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins in our place. And Jesus died to pay the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life. And God is a gracious God who extends the free offer of eternal life, not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ. And so this morning I realized there may be somebody here or somebody watching online who has never trusted Christ as their Savior. That's the simple gospel message, that you can receive Jesus Christ by grace through faith, as a free gift. And if you've never done that, I hope you will do that today and know that you have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. That's the message we all get to share. Is that not an awesome privilege to be able to share that message? And so the size of the harvest.
How much of a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency do you have to reap a harvest of souls for Christ? Secondly, I would point out the shortage of workers. Again, the text is very clear when it says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There weren't enough workers in Jesus' day, and the need is even greater today. By by the way, I I just want to make sure, too, you understand, this is not just an exclusively missions text. In other words, we have a tendency to lump harvest laborers into a category that's about missionaries. But the reality of the matter is this. Every born-again child of God ought to be a harvest laborer. So it's not just for pastors and not just for missionaries, but if you're a Christian, you are involved in the harvest. The case could even be made that in some ways you're more out in the field than even the average pastor is able to be out in the field as you live and rub shoulders with people that need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So it's not exclusively a missions text, nor is it exclusively a pastoral ministry text. I think missions and pastoral ministry kind of just punctuate the urgency of the need in our day. In terms of what's happening in our circles of churches, shortage of pastors, churches going two, three, four, five years, and maybe for the rest of their existence without a pastor because there aren't enough pastors. Bible colleges and seminaries closing half a dozen of them in the last 12 years in our circles that have closed. You know, and, and a mission shortage as well. Most of our mission agencies are facing a significant shortage of missionaries. The number of missionaries retiring is exceeding the number of missionaries that are going out into the field. One large missions president of a large evangelical agency said this about their organization. He said that they are, they are right now in the process of experiencing a 5% decline in their missionary numbers per year. And that they project that that will be the case for the foreseeable future. Can you imagine that? 5% per year for the foreseeable future. And so the need is great. And as I think about that in relationship to the totality of Scripture, one of the things that goes through my mind is this. is, Is God just calling fewer people to ministry? If this is the case in America, especially today, is God just calling fewer people to ministry? I can't help but think that that's contrary to the very nature of God, who who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to to, to eternal life, and and that once the gospel message spread around the world. So I don't think it's a matter of God is calling fewer as much as it is a matter of fewer are willing to go. Fewer or willing to go. So the question I would ask in terms of application of us this morning is simply this. Why is the need even greater today? Why is the need even greater today? And I, I think there's a long list of answers. But one of them is fewer believers are willing to surrender. Fewer w- believers are willing to surrender. The reality of the matter is, is that every Christian ought to be living a surrendered life. Romans 12, verse 1, very specifically says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body a holy sacrifice, a sac- living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Every one of us ought to be, be living a surrendered life where we say every day to God, I'm yours. I'm not mine. I'll do what you want me to do. I will be what you want me to be. I will go where you want me to go. And so perhaps part of the issue is that. Does God want you to serve him in a different way? And if so, are you willing to do what he would want you to do. The second one is wrong parental goals. And this is not original with me. By the way, some of these are taken from a great book by Woodrow Kroll called The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century. 
He wrote it at the beginning of the 21st century. Actually, he wrote it in the 90s and revised it at the beginning of the 21st century. And it's almost, the book is almost prophetic in terms of how it predicted what we would be facing today in the American church. But he very specifically says this. He says that the problem, part of the problem with the shortage of missionaries and the shortage of pastors is that parents are actually discouraging their children from even considering ministry. Or he puts it this way, we give our children to the Lord at baby dedication and then take them back at graduation. And he cites the the normal conversation, especially between a dad and his child or children in relationship to choice of vocations. And the conversation usually goes something like this. You need to go to college or you need to learn a trade or whatever the case may be so that you can make what? Money. That's the conversation. That's the primary focus of the average American Christian as they talk to their child or children about the choice of, vo- of a vocation. And, and I saw this you know, personally when doing admissions at, at Faith Baptist Bible College. Literally, there were teenagers who said, I want to go to faith. And then mom and dad said, oh, oh, oh you, can't, you can't go to a Bible college. You won't make any money. And actually told their children, either told them they couldn't go or, or, or encouraged them not to go to Bible college because they wouldn't make money. And so, unfortunately, a lot of parents think in those terms. Woodrow Crowell, I think, has an interesting statement in relationship to that when he says this. He says, many parents perceive if, that if they commit their children to God, he will cruelly force them to live in poverty and deprivation all of their lives in some far-off, bug-infested jungle. Or worse, they won't experience the glamour of being sent to the mission field, but will experience the horror of being tucked away as a pastor and wife in a little church in a no-name town, best described as 10 miles south of resume speed. I, I, I pastored at a Holmes Baptist church. I lived in Clarion, Iowa, a town of 2,200 people, I think, 2,500 people. Um, we were that town. <laughs> we were the one-and-a-half stoplight town. One and a half because the other one was just a crosswalk stoplight that only turned on when somebody hit the crosswalk button. And yet, there was no greater thrill than serving God in that kind of place, in the center of God's will, and making an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope all the parents and all the grandparents in this room would absolutely love it if God called their children to be pastors or if God called their child to be a missionary, or if God called their child to be faithful in a local church, even if that meant a different choice of of vocations because of their desire to be involved in ministry in some way, shape, or form. And yet, for a lot of parents, it's the other way around. Wrong parental goals. The last one is the seduction of materialism. I'm afraid that we have developed such a taste for material things in America that the idea of sacrifice... The idea of self-denial is almost repugnant to the average American Christian giving it all up. I mean, imagine this. If God called you to some place across the world and the only thing you could take with you was three suitcases and you had to get rid of everything else, would you do that? Would you do that? Or the very idea of having to sell it all and give it all up Is that something that really bothers you? Perhaps you struggle with the materialism that is part of the issue in the American church today. And so I ask the question, why is the need even greater today? These are three possible answers in terms of application. But let me also, on a positive note, that's pretty negative, on a positive note, 
ask another question in terms of application related to the shortage of workers. And that question is, where is the need the greatest? So if, if the laborers are few and the harvest is plenteous, where is it that the gospel needs to be taken? And, and if, if you had a missionary in from Baptist Midmissions today, and if you actually lined up a dozen missionaries from Baptist Midmissions today, they would say this, the need's the greatest on my field, which is great. Every last one of them would want you to come to their field, which is phenomenal. But let me just give you a couple of examples of where the needs are just amazing and the opportunities are also amazing. Number one is in the, in the mega metropolitan metropolises of the world, the metropolitan areas of the world. And, and I, I use the word mega metropolises because you understand that a metropolitan area is not just the, the borders of just that city proper. It's the urban sprawl and suburban sprawl that have been experienced by these huge metropolitan areas. Uh, it, it's really hard to even fathom the speed at which these large cities are growing in terms of the number of people that are moving there on a, on a daily basis. Uh, the top five largest metropolitan areas in the world today average, the top five average 27 million souls. Can you imagine that? 27 million souls in the world's largest cities. And by the way, none of those are in America. New York City doesn't make the list. Chicago doesn't make the list. L.A. doesn't make the list. Houston doesn't make the list. None of our big cities are in the top five. 27 million souls. And, and, and by comparison, what's Iowa have? Right? The whole city or the whole state. Just, just right around 3 million. So just our, our entire state. There's only 3 million people compared to the mega cities of the world. Ruth and I had the opportunity to travel in February uh, to Brazil. It was our second time in Brazil, but our first time in Sao Paulo, Brazil, the largest city in, in all of Brazil. And we were amazed by the size of the, the greater metropolitan area and how long it took just to get across the city, not to mention how long it took to get back to the airport. <laughs> that was a bit of a challenge. But 23 million people, they're one of these top fives, one of the lower ones on the top five. 23 million people in, the, in this huge city of, of Sao Paulo. And our first day there, our missionary host took us to a restaurant that was on an upper floor, kind of in the middle of the city. And the reason they did that is they wanted us to be able to kind of see the whole city other than what we saw when we flew in. And so as far as the eye could see, I mean, just city, 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 city. And one of the things that impressed me or was amazing to me was this, that there were High-rise apartments just all over the place. You know, 30-story high, 40-story high, high-rise apartments. And so I asked our missionary host, I said, so, I mean, I see all these apartment buildings everywhere. How many people live in just, just one of those? And he said, 5,000. Can you imagine that? Just one building, and there's these buildings. I said, that sounds like a church planting strategy. Just get one floor of one of those buildings, right? And that's your mission field, is that those 5,000 people, and they haven't done that necessarily, but... But that's just one example of one city all over the world. There are cities like that that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who's going to go? Who's going to reach them? Who's going to take the gospel to those kinds of places? The metropolitan areas of the world are in need of the gospel of Christ. The second opportunity is in terms of creative access nations. We used to call these restricted access nations, you know, kind of negative sounding by calling it restricted access. And there is, there is a measure of restriction in these places. But we refer to it as creative access because in most of them, there are opportunities for missionaries to go just in creative ways. In other words, you, you can't fill out the form 
uh, to get a visa and say, I'm going to be a religious worker, let me in, because you would be rejected. But you can use other creative means to get into countries like this, where you serve in some other capacity while also being a missionary. Typically, these are nations that are predominantly Muslim or Hindu or communist in nature. And so the Lord's opening doors. The Lord's opening doors through business, where someone has a side small business in order to be in that country in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teaching English has been a long-term opportunity in a lot of these countries where you can serve and be a part of, of gospel witness. Practicing medicine in some of these countries is a bridge to be able to be there. I'll tell a story about that. Or even other vocations where you can be a part of a church planting team and you can work your job from America remotely, but be a part of the church planting team that is in that country. We have some of that going on in Southeast Asia right now where there are some people that are doing that. They're not the lead church planter missionaries, but they're helping in that church planting work by just doing their IT-related job or their job that they can work remotely from anywhere in the world. And so the opportunities are, are great in places like that. Let me tell you about a couple of them, creative places. I won't mention the countries because of the nature of them being restricted or creative access, but... There's an island off the coast of Africa that is, of all things, 99.9% Muslim. One of the most Muslim nations in the world. Missionary couldn't go there in the normal way, but a missionary could go there as a business owner. And so one of our missionaries is there. They actually run a fitness center. Think Planet Fitness. And that's their, their means to be there. That's what gets them the permission to be there. But guess what? That's also the springboard for gospel witness because of all the Muslim clients that come into their building to work out, and they develop a relationship with them. They get to know them. Actually, one of their best ministries is hospitality, where they invite them over because they're curious about what American food tastes like. And so they, they feed them American food. One, one couple, very specifically, when they invited them to come over to their house in, in hushed tones, said, and, and when we come over, can you tell us about Jesus? We hear you tell people about Jesus. We want to know who he, who he was and what he did. And they got to share the gospel with that couple. They had a Muslim imam, I mean, somewhat the equivalent of a, of a pastor in our context, asked them if they, he could do a Bible study with them, one of their clients. They saw their first convert come to Christ a few months ago, a lady, a woman. And she spoke to them about being baptized, knowing that she needed to publicly profess her faith in Christ. And, of course, they don't have a church building or anything like that. And so they said, well, where would you like to be baptized? And she said, I want to be baptized down on the beach so everybody can see and know I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Of course, you can imagine the consequences of her doing that. But boldly proclaimed her faith in Christ because of a couple that was willing to do missions creatively. We have another ministry and this is this one's been around significantly longer but years ago we realized the only way to get into this muslim nation was through medical missions and so we gained permission to start a medical ministry in this and that became a hospital but we were told by the local officials very pointedly but you won't have a baptist church in our city well by god's grace now decades later we have a baptist church of a thousand people uh with 16 daughter churches that have, have been planted out of that, and it all revolves around the hospital and that medical ministry. One of the things that, that's really vital to that, though, is we have one MD. We have a number of nurses. We have one MD that runs that hospital, and he is on the verge of retirement. He's in his 70s. And in order for that ministry and that hospital to continue, God needs to call another MD or a doctor of some sort, DO, whatever the case may be, to that hospital. So we're we're praying and asking God to do that, to provide 
another doctor for us for that ministry to continue to have that vital outreach in, into the region for Christ through medical missions. So there are places like that where God's doing things like that and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question for you today is, does God want you to get involved? Could God want you to go to a place like that, whether it's a Brazil, South America, or one of these creative access nations, one of the megacities, or just some other place that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ? The shortage of workers is so significant. The, the need is so great. Size of the harvest, the shortage of workers. And then finally, let me just wrap up today with the solution. And it's interesting what Jesus said here. Jesus doesn't in this context say go. He doesn't even say pray for people to be saved. We know that other places in Scripture those ideas are taught. But what he says here is this. He says this. He says in verse 38, Therefore, pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And, and I want us to focus a little bit on how Jesus says that because there are four New Testament Greek words that are, that are typically translated pray, praying, prayer, something like that. But the word that is specifically used here in this text is the word deamai. And it, it, it really creates a, a nuance for us of what prayer is all about. The word deamai emphasizes wanting something desperately because of an urgent need so that you plead with someone to provide it. So prayer is that. Prayer is wanting something desperately because of an urgent need. So you, you, you beg, you plead with someone else to provide it. And that is illustrated for us in other passages of Scripture where in some translations the word prayer isn't even used. The word beg is. Or the word plead is used for the translation. We won't take the time to go there, but if you were to turn to Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, you have the example of a leper who encounters Jesus. He's heard about Christ. He's heard that he's a healer. He has leprosy. You know all the social and physical consequences of leprosy. And so when he meets Jesus, what do you think he does? He prays. It's the word deamai, or a lot of Bible translations translate it this way. He begs Jesus to heal him. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. There's another example where this same word deamai is used, but it's usually not translated pray. It's usually translated plead or, or beg. It's the example in Luke chapter 9, verse 38, of a father of a demon-possessed boy. Again, imagine, imagine you being the, the, the daddy or the mommy of a demon-possessed boy that does bodily harm, that has convulsions, all these other horrible things, and you meet Jesus. What would you do? Right? You would beg Jesus to heal your boy. And that's exactly what he does in that passage of the scripture. And that's exactly what Christ did. And so those texts and others, I think, convey to us that, that praying is not just a nonchalant, casual thing where we say, oh God, by the way, could you? No, praying in this debt of my sense, and even in this context here, is begging God. And so what Jesus is commanding us to do is to beg God for more harvest laborers. The question I would ask us as followers of Christ is, when's the last time you did that? Jesus commands it. Pray the Lord of the harvest. When is the last time you begged God for more harvest laborers? Another question that comes to mind as I think about what Jesus commands us to do is, so why does he, why does he command us to pray first? Why doesn't he tell us to go? Why doesn't he tell us to pray for even salvation of, of souls? I like the way Ian Bounds puts it. He says this, that prayer can do anything God can. Because prayer can do anything God can. And I think on top of it, prayer often makes the one praying the answer to their own prayer. Right? 
Warren Wiersbe put it this way. He said, when we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw, feel what he felt, and do what he did. See, the best thing that you can do to become a part of the harvest of souls is begin to to pray. Pray for, yes, the salvation of souls, but also pray for more harvest labors. And as you are asking God to send more harvest labors, ask yourself the question, am I part of God's answer to my prayer? Does God want me to be one of those who will go to answer that prayer? That's part of what God did in my heart to call me to Baptist Midmissions. I had prayed this prayer faithfully for decades. Not every single day, but regularly. Lord of the harvest, send more labors. Lord of the harvest, send more labors. On a regular basis. And as I was grappling with leaving a church I so dearly loved that I thought I would pastor for 20 more years, part of what God did in my own heart, in my own life, was convict me about the fact that He wanted me to be a part of the answer to my own prayers that I had been praying for decades. And maybe God would do that kind of work in your heart and your soul if you begin to pray for more harvest labors. Harvest prayer should be both a personal priority and a church priority. In other words, every Christian ought to be praying, but every church ought to be praying, Lord of the harvest, send more laborers into your harvest field. And yet I'm afraid that, and I haven't looked at your church prayer bulletin, most church bulletins don't focus on that. If you were to look at the, the majority of the things in the prayer bulletin, they are primarily physical in nature. And that's not wrong, okay, to pray for people's physical needs. But we ought to be obeying the Lord when he says pray. For more harvest laborers. My fear is that Christians pray more about getting saints out of the hospital than sinners out of hell and pray the Lord of the hospital more than the Lord of the harvest. Jesus commanded us to pray the Lord of the harvest. A prayer priority, I hope, a prayer priority for Maranatha Baptist Church will be asking God, begging God for more harvest laborers. Maybe to even think about it in these terms. Who's the next missionary God's going to send out of Maranatha Baptist? Are you praying for that next missionary that God will send from your midst to reach the world? And then while you're praying, is it you? Is it you? Because God wants you to be the answer to that kind of prayer. Let me wrap up today with just some application of what I believe God wants us to do in light of his word. Number one, ask God to give you a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency that is fueled by a compassion for souls. As you realize the size of the harvest, may that be true in the heart of every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Number Number two, I think we all need to ask ourselves the question, am I truly surrendered? So surrender your life to God's will. Am I willing to go, be, do whatever God wants me to go or to be or to do? Am I truly living a daily surrendered life? And number three, encourage your, encourage your children and your grandchildren to give their lives to Christ and to serve Him. There's no better life than serving Christ. No better life. Don't discourage them from that. And then finally, make praying for harvest workers a daily habit. I'll talk about this more in our family hour, but uh, one of the things that we've uh, initiated at, at Baptist Midmissions is what we call Pray 938, based on Matthew 938. There's a lot that goes into this, but for me, one of the things that happens is my alarm goes off on my phone at 9.38 in the morning and at 9.38 at night to remind me to pray, and we'll stop what we do, we're doing. We did this at Augsburgers last night. My phone went off, so we're in the middle of conversation. My quote-unquote rule is whoever's talking gets to pray. 
My wife said has to pray last night, but it gets to pray. Um, so I'll be at a meeting at Baptist Admissions, and, and my, phone, my phone alarm will go off at 938. Whoever happens to be talking in that meeting, we stop everything we're doing, and we pray for more harvest laborers. And so I, I'll talk about this in the next hour, but I would love it if you signed up back there at our table. There's a, there's a sign-up sheet, and by signing up, you're simply saying, I'll join the, the, the group of people that are praying for more harvest laborers, and I'll commit to praying daily. That's what you're doing. And we'll send you a monthly email just for that, just focused on that. And uh, you could become one of our prayer partners, and we'd love it if, if you did. Pray 938 is what that is called, and, and we'll talk about that in more detail in the next hour. But I trust that, that you will do that. God wants all of us to pray, and some of us to go, and all of us to give. And I hope that you will be a part of what God is doing around the world to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Our time together in the Word this morning, I pray that you would use your Word to stir our hearts for the souls around us that need Jesus Christ and for the souls around the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.